This is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast about current events and Christian hope. Have a hard time putting those two things together? You're not alone. Our timelines may be filled with bad news, but Christ remains on his throne. So what does it mean to live in the light of that truth rather than the shadow of our never-ending dumpster fires? That's the question animating this conversation between Nathan Rittenhouse and Cameron McAllister, two Christian apologists who believe that true hope and realism go hand in hand. So let's think out loud together about current events and Christian hope. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. You know, one of the odd things that's been happening to us, so here we are in the middle of starting up you know, a whole new organization. And so we call each other for a lot of random reasons about website stuff and financial things and whatnot. And we always get totally distracted. Cameron can call me for the most simple thing. And then 50 minutes later, we are way down some rabbit hole. And so there are lots of very interesting thinking out loud episodes that have happened during meetings that were about something entirely different. Um, And in one of those kind of recent conversations, we, you had sent me, you were talking about kind of the whole Alec Baldwin, uh, the rust, uh, sh- set shooting and the tragedy around that. And then sort of the way that that's now landing in our popular culture. Um, and then you sent me an article and then I had a thought on the article and why don't you lay that out for us? Kind of give us a a launching point here. And so this might not be an in-depth analysis of this specific event, but as usual, we look at these things and say, well, maybe this is uh, part of a bigger thing. And we're going to see if we can sort that out a little bit. So give us the background and uh, your first thoughts, and then I'll loop back around. Yeah. It's, and it's also funny. How many times do we have those phone calls where we've got something very nuts and bolts to do? And then we've launched off into the philosophical and theological stratosphere and we think, gosh, this should have been an episode. You've, or, yeah, Nathan will always invariably end it. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud. So, yeah, this was one such phone call. So, in this case, we thought we would inflict it on you. Yeah, there was an article in Variety that had an interesting analysis of what happened on the set of Rust, essentially saying this was a very extreme case. And a very, indeed, a very sad and tragic one. Somebody, I mean, somebody has died, and people's lives are forever, forever altered and changed. This producer who who was killed has, I believe, a nine-year-old child, married. It's just, it's, it's terrible, and it really is. And you, I mean, people are just reeling here. But what this article was also pointing out was that the production on new television shows in the last five years has more than doubled. I forget the precise figures. It went from, in 2010, I believe, it was somewhere around 230 or 240 shows in development that year, new television, streaming, or whatever shows. And now we're at over, I think it's it's just under 600 shows. So, You've got this spike in production, and they're really, they just don't have enough help. They're spread so thin. And so what's happening now is that safety standards have taken a real nosedive, 
And they're also not working with people who are as experienced because they just need so many, many more people. They need all hands on deck. And so they're increasingly hiring production assistants and people behind the scenes who really don't have the necessary training to be doing what they're doing. And of course, let's face it, a lot of these movies and a lot of these shows are pretty violent in nature, which means they've got, you know, firearms, there are explosions, all sorts of stunts that require a lot of safety training and measures. And so those standards are going down, suggests this article kind of provocatively because of our voracious appetite for entertainment. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I think I want to begin this conversation involving the, the Alec Baldwin and what happened there on on the set of rust yeah so my so the subtitle though of that article was we did this to ourselves and that's where i was ah okay hang on a second there this then plays into an idea of saying we are responsible for what happened there because of our insatiable desire for new shows that were part of driving the the speed and the scale of things in a way that is you know, overlooking safety standards. Uh, so we're, you know, we're complicit in this. That being said, and maybe you can help me sort out the degree to which we think that's true, but that also goes from um, the massive expansion of the consumption rate of avocados in the United States in the last 10 years as well, and the drug cartel and violence that's a big part of that in Mexico right now based off of our appreciation of avocados in the northern part of North America. Um, so, I mean, how do you how do you begin to sort out where this is a legitimate and it's an illegitimate... Um, in some ways, it, it feels you know too far to me to say we did this to ourselves. Um, there is a fact that, you know, there were individuals who were really involved in this. So it's... It's it's a classic conundrum of how do we parse out degrees of human responsibility and what does that even mean and who's responsible for even if we do have an insatiable desire for something does that mean that it can't be done safely how do you how do you begin f- thinking about that or even trying to frame it well i think right now the all eyes are going to be on Alec Baldwin just when it comes to the actual we're trying to figure out who actually is to blame here Mm-hmm. And at the moment, and he's got an interview that, as of this recording, is is has not quite aired. It's about to. Yeah, and I think then the question of, I mean, a big question in all of these cases is who is responsible, who's to blame here, and of course now the claim is being made by Alec Baldwin. Hey, I not only this was a terrible accident, but I didn't pull the trigger. And so that, of course, launches off a whole nother discussion and, and, and a whole nother field of speculation on what's going on behind the scenes, who's lying here. And so I think that's one part of one major part of the conversation that's about to kind of be reignited here. Mm-hmm. Who's actually responsible? Who actually, I mean, a bullet came out of that gun, somebody pulled a trigger. Yeah, so and I was I was thinking about that though. Was holding it, and yeah. So there 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 are times in which firearms accidentally discharge, um, and that's why anybody who 
owns a gun never points it at another person. <laughs> I mean, because that's like rule number one is you always assume you always act like it's loaded and that it's going to shoot whatever it's pointing at. I mean, so even when you know the gun isn't loaded, you still behave as if it were just for that because of the consequences of you being wrong about it. Um, and so I think, you know, specifically on, yeah, where did the live round come from? That's going to be a big part of like, how did that even get there? On the other hand, we can say, oh, you know, we have lower safety standards because, um, you know, our insatiable desire, we're hiring less trained people. I think a lot of people would say, no, actually, Alec Baldwin did something there that it wasn't a safety professional somewhere around the age 10, his dad should have showed him how this works. Um, you can't accidentally shoot a Colt 45 that requires for it to be cocked in the first place. And then, so if, if it is a hammer action, yeah, I could see maybe bumping into something, but you, there are a whole host of conditions that have to be just right for an accident like that to happen that start to really strain the degree of credibility. Um, and again, I'm not making any court decision here, accusation and the lawyers will figure this all out. I'm sure. But, um, the the desire to offload and, and we all do this is to offload responsibility um or to claim innocence and and that's what i'm trying to figure out when are we and when aren't we um uh, sorry rabbit trail from where you're going there but well was, there's yeah. some unique features of this case that make it so captivating in the responsibility category because there are so many very specific chains of action and causation yeah, and I think what I was getting at there was there's there's just there's the one direct kind of side of the conversation, which just involves, okay, this this weapon was discharged. Who's to blame here? Who's directly responsible? And then there's the broader question of, yes, what is what's our responsibility? Okay, according to this Variety article, what's our responsibility as entertainment consumers? And here things get a little interesting. Because let's let's take your avocado example also, Nathan. So yeah, increased consumption of avocados is also a contributing factor now to cartel crime, right? And so when you're there and you're using, you know, in the morning your toast is popped and you are a typical millennial and you're using that avocado instead of good old fashioned butter, you know, not to trivialize this, but so what role, I mean, is this, are you doing your part now to aid and abet serious criminal behavior? Well, we, when you put it in these terms, it sounds a little goofy. And so when you, you know, binge the upteenth show with your family, are you in some way doing your part to diminish the safety standards and conditions on Hollywood sets? And are you actively endangering the lives of actors and crew members? Again, it sounds a little strange to say it there. And yet, and yet, do we bear some measure of responsibility as consumers? Well, there, I think we would have to say, yes, yes. So, all right, let me, yeah, let me interject here. Is there, is there a, does the word consumer in and of itself, so I, I want to throw out two words. One would be consumer and one would be participant. So, does seeing ourselves as a consumer absolve us from, if we're using the word consumption, does that absolve us from the production side of things? If we use the word participant and we see ourselves as part of a, a larger network, 
this might not be going anywhere, but I'm trying to flesh out this idea of, of the way that we define what it is that we're doing may have some implication on how we see whether or not we're involved in it. Well, I'm wondering if what you mean, if so is what you're getting at consumerism sounds more passive and participation would imply a more active role. Would that be fair, a fair way of reading what you're saying, Nathan? Yeah, no, that's, that's right. Yep. Yeah, so participation in a system, not just consuming a product. Right. And I'm I'm speaking in I'm use, really using consumer in terms of the marketplace here just because we're if we're talking about because we are talking about products. We're talking about entertainment and we're talking about mm-hmm. you know, a food item that is, you know, rot, sold in the store. Yeah, I think we are again, it, it are are we in some way participating? I I suppose I'm I don't think consumerism is is a passive activity. I'll put it that way. And so So we I think you and I are agreeing here. Yep. We just want to make sure that everybody listening makes that you're Connection. you're not using consumer in a passive sense. Okay. No, I'm not. Yep. Uh, more more of a kind of descriptive sense, but so I think here and I, we've mentioned this on the on the show before and that's not because we're repetitive, that's just because we're so consistent. I just want to put that out there. Just kidding, but we've, <laughs> yeah. we're or or we're getting older. <laughs> Have I told you this before? But the so when you look into the marketplace, and if you just examine your own consumer habits, you're quickly going to see it become very problematic from an ethical standpoint because just there are it's that's the 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 crooked timber of humanity is just such that you're going to find some very questionable practices that are baked into so many of our human institutions. And so I think therein lies an invitation, not for... There's there's a couple of different options here. You can despair of it. You can kind of take an apathetic stance and say, well, it doesn't... I mean, there's nothing I can do about it. So, you know, I it is what it is. I live in this world. I've got to... You know, I want if I want to kick back on the couch with a new show, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. There's just there's nothing I can do. I'm powerless. Or you can go in the opposite direction and you can take on a kind of activist stance and you occupy a position of kind of sort of permanent moral urgency and outrage over some of these instances. I actually I have some friends who I, I think are in this category. And I think there's some room for it because some people actually, I think, are kind of called to this sort of vocational posture. They act; a, they're, they're basically a kind of prophetic role, and what they're trying to do is call us to wake up to the fact that what we do affects everybody else. That's another posture. There might be a more moderate, or I, I think, sort of, yeah, a more a more moderate posture where you say, "No, I want to be." Yes, okay. So consumerism, in the sense that I have to participate in the marketplace. I'm probably going to watch some shows. Not everybody does, but some most people do. Nathan's not most people, but most people do. But I want to do so responsibly. And so I want my habits, I want to examine my habits, and to the best of my abilities, make sure that I'm not actively supporting anything that's bringing harm to somebody else or that's putting them in a position of running themselves ragged in terms of their work conditions. And so should should it be 
Should quitting a streaming service be an option on the table, or should watching less, should buying less be an option? I, I think it should. And again, one specific example I'll give, and then I'd love to hear Nathan weigh in here, is when we've talked about this on the show as well, when there's a shortage that's being predicted, whether it's gas or whether it's a certain food item, you know, let's say there's been a COVID outbreak in a Tyson chicken plant. This is something that's happened before. Well, when that's announced, what immediately happens is people make a run on the store and buy up all of that product. All the chicken vanishes from the shelves. And I remember being in the store once and there was a tiny bit of whatever product was was in short supply left, maybe bacon, who knows what it was. And I actually had some at home, but there was this impulse, oh, get it, get it, get it. It's going to go soon. You better you better stock up on it. And I thought, "Wait, no. That's part of the problem. I already have it. I don't need it." And and maybe somebody else, even if I did, maybe somebody else needs it more than me. I can live without this. So I did not do it. And if we had more people who would, but that's just a small, tiny example of not going with the herd mentality on as a, as a consumer and stepping back and trying to do something that promotes the welfare of the common good rather than your own, you know, your own fridge and your own household and your own entertainment habits. So I think there's a responsible posture that we can, that we, that we can take that won't look as extreme. So yeah, a couple a couple thoughts there. Um, yeah, one is as you're talking about my peculiarity is I am part of a family of six that has no streaming services and we stay fairly entertained around here. But there's there's a, a one factor of this that we haven't poked into yet. So you know the the did you ever see the thing back at, during the the rise of ISIS where they were talking about it's because of climate change. Have you you saw that one where because of your carbon oh, man, emissions yeah. that led to the development of ISIS because of global warming displacing farmers and then turmoil and unrest and you're like man that is a long cause of causation there to try to implicate all of us into ISIS chopping people's heads off. Um, it's a stretch. It's, it's, you're like yeah it's a bit of a stretch. So the thing is with with the avocado or whatever else it is film streaming service is and this is what we haven't said is that no we do recognize that there is a cost to all of these things and that's why we pay for them. And so when we put a payment in there, then we, then we are feeling like we are, um, we're recognizing the difficulties that come with it and we're, we are responsible for it and we're paying our part to make it okay. That being said, I, I think eating avocados is just fine for the record. And it does, it does way more good than it does harm in the world. I'm sure. So enjoy your avocado toast or avocado water or whatever it is that you uh, enjoy. Just don't do it in a morally high handed look down your nose at everybody else kind of way um, because you are recognizing the fullness of it and the pros and the cons, but there's something about paying for something that I think we think absolves us of the deep reflection of everything that goes on behind it. That's, sort of a unique feature, um, of our time. And that's one of the wonderful things that money allows us to do is to distance ourselves from the full impact and consequences of our behavior. So we can pay somebody to haul off our trash. We can pay somebody to take care of our dead bodies. We can pay somebody to, you know, do all the behind the scenes, uh, dirty work and we don't have to deal with it. So I think what we might be saying here in this idea of implication and responsibility is that we do want to think all the way through it 
and not fall in the trap of thinking that money then provides money doesn't become a way to wash our hands of a situation. Yeah, I paid for it. Therefore, you know, I'm I'm kind of yeah, I'm absolved. No, I mean, the other I mean, there are so many different contributing factors with all of this. This is just to give you an illustration of how this when we're if we're if we're looking if we're playing a blame game kind of scenario here. What about also the the COVID restrictions that, you know, stranded many people in their homes for extended periods of time? What about those massive lockdowns? So what are people going to do? What are modern people, non, what, are, what are non-written house people going to do when they're locked down in their homes? They're going to spend extortionate amounts of time on the internet and streaming services and by the way, I'm not saying that these these policies are are completely to blame. I'm saying they're a factor, and I'm saying if we start playing this, if we if you take steps into this tangled web of responsibility, I think one of the major outstanding points I would want to make here, and if we is and it's still it's it's still hard for me to believe that we that we need to be reminded of this, but what you do in the privacy of your own home affects other people. There is no such thing as a purely private act. Your entertainment habits, your diet, what you wear, (laughs) all of this sends out ripples across the world for better or for worse. And again, this is an invitation to think responsibly it's not it's not it's not an invitation for apathy or you know despair or cynicism or necessarily you know 24/7 activism and in some cases crushing guilt and i do i, I want to just make a quick pastoral note here some of this has to do with temperament and the way the way we really the way i mean temperament wiring the way we are and there are there are some people who as they begin to look into basically so many of the, the 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 harmful practices, the terrible policies, and so many in, in, in so many industries that they've previously enjoyed, they do experience absolutely crushing guilt, and that's a burden that doesn't necessarily need to be on your shoulders. It's one thing to recognize the the need to campaign for for ethical working conditions, of course, and to try to really just promote the general welfare of people and the common good, whether that's for, you know, Hollywood workers or for people behind the scenes in food production, whatever it is. And that's a noble aspiration, but it's also it's I think it's really important to recognize and to be real be realistic as Christians, about what it actually means to live in a fallen world. And again, that's not a recipe for quietism or despair. That is, that's just the healthy recognition that there is only so much that we can do, and a lot of what we will do will look like a drop in the ocean, but it does make a difference. It really does. And so if you're going to live your life trying to be a responsible participant in the different cultural institutions and the and the the marketplace, you're doing a good thing and it matters and it may be a drop in the ocean, but it's a significant drop. 
that's all I'd say there. End, end, little pastoral rant. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe we could flip this around and, and hit it from the same same idea from a, a different angle. I'll tell a story here just because I haven't quoted Grandpa yet in this podcast. But when I was a yeah. young guy, I don't know, maybe in my early teens, I was eating a bowl of Cheerios and giving some great rant about independence. And uh, Grandpa is listening to my, you know, young, youthful independence crusade I was on at the breakfast table. And he said, oh, he said, that's interesting. He said, uh, he said, it's my guess that you probably don't know anything about the life of the man that grew the vegetables that fed the man that mined the metal that made your spoon in China. <laughs> and then went on for a whole another host of things from the production of the bowl to the milk to the person who drove the combine, who lubricated the, you know, the grease fittings on the combine that produced the grain that was then milled and shipped and boxed and packaged. And, you know, you can pretty quickly see how about a thousand people are involved in your breakfast. So there's a recognition that happens there that we do live in a world with other people in it. And I, I, I'm struck by the fact that it seems like that was a lot of what Jesus was trying to get people to realize this whole, who is my neighbor thing really comes crashing into shocking relevance when we start thinking about this prescriptive measure that Jesus gives on this loving your neighbor of not just not doing harm to your neighbor, but taking an active role in understanding how what you choose to do influences other people and being cautious. Um, well, not being cautious, but being open about, yeah, I can evaluate whether or not this is a good thing to do not based off of how it makes me feel or if I have the money to do it, but actually it might, there might be some other implications happening here, uh, in the world that, um, I don't want to be a part of this, not because it's wrong for me to do it, but because what would need to be done to others in order for this to happen isn't right. Um, and, and I think we might move from preaching to meddling if we started making a list of the ones that we thought, um, could disappear from our lives or something like that. But I think maybe linking in that idea of money does not make us independent, that we do live in a global economy, that we do have a command to love others well, it does two things at the same time, right? It kind of lets us know that we're connected, but it doesn't necessarily make us guilty either in a way that, um, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure how to, to tie those two things together, but there does seem to me to be something that this is the problem that I have, Cameron, and this is a real question, and I don't think you can answer it, but there are circumstances oh, in life where where <laughs> um, the attitude I'm, I'm wondering if there's ever a circumstance in which the attitude by which you do something changes the ethical considerations of it. Um, the only reason I would say that is, so is the attitude by which you do something, even if it's the same action, make it different? There is a a Wendell Berry quote at the end of one of his books where he talks about, you know, eating and it can be a sacrilege when we do it destructively and thoughtlessly. But if we do it with thanksgiving and recognition, then it can be a real thing of, of beauty. And I mean, it sounds nice. And obviously he wrote it out in a very wonderful and poetic way as Wendell Berry does, but I've wrestled with whether or not that's true. Can you do the same action and the moral goodness of it be different depending on the way that you do it. And something in me kind of wants to say yes to that, that if we recognize, but again, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sold on this. Maybe one of our listeners can, 
get it sorted out. But if we do something, recognizing the fullness of what happened, then there's a level of gratitude that happens because of the work that went into it that doesn't happen in merely a consumption format. So that gets a little bit more difficult. How many people sit down and watch a Netflix show and then just spend a few minutes afterward thinking, wow, I'm just so grateful for the yep. safety workers that were involved in producing that. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's almost laughable to put it because we've removed ourselves from that distance. So I don't know, what does that, how does that yeah. awareness and thanksgiving help or complicate this conversation that we're having? You're talking about the posture of your heart, I think. And it's roughly, to use the meal example again, it's roughly the difference between somebody who wolfs down a meal with a sense of entitlement and thinks, yeah, no, I mean, but this is mine. I paid for it. It's my food. I enjoyed it. And the person who prays to the Lord and thanks the Lord for that food. And so you have entitlement versus gratitude right there. And that same attitude applies to all of our cultural practices, if I'm hearing you correctly. And I do think that makes a difference. And I do think it matters. And so, yeah, again, being a Christian means you're going to be goofy, though, right? So watching <laughs> watching Stranger Things season four or whatever, when it finally makes its debut, with an adi- with, yeah, with with a feeling of of gratitude for just all of the numerous factors that came together, all the people involved that brought it to you it's, it, with such convenience is actually a good posture to have. But I think the other, the other question that we can have before our minds in this conversation, especially as we're thinking about some of our habits reinforcing maybe bad safety conditions, for, for instance. I mean, I do think there's actually a case to be made that the, I mean, no matter how you parse it, the level of of cons- of online consumption and streaming consumption is truly astronomical and producers have been trying to keep pace with consumer habits now for years and trying to figure out how to deal with the whole binging phenomenon that will have that does have real world practical consequences and there is a measure of responsibility there and so i think the other question that we can have before our minds and this goes along with a posture of gratitude, but then the question can be, am I willing to part with convenience when it's the right thing to do? Mm -hmm. Because one thing I've learned in recent years is that convenience is one of it, it, what, what are broadly speaking, what are luxury items? Many people will really fight you with all that they have to hold on to them. And that's, that's what's and that's an alarming mindset and that i would suggest gently to you as a listener is is deeply unhealthy so if you know if if you are completely unwilling to maybe yeah to do without something if it's if you believe that it is actually actively harming people because it's it's convenient or because it it's it provides entertainment to your life or because it makes your life easier in some way then we have a problem because mm-hmm. you know your convictions need to always win out over convenience speaking to christians here we are the ones who the, the stand our lord's standard would dictate that can that conviction 
wins out over convenience every time. I think also and just so throw in there that doesn't quickly, mean we stop. throw in there quickly also cost. It's not just that conviction wins out over convenience. It also wins out over cost. And so oftentimes there are multiple versions of yeah. the same product, but you're going to have to pay a little bit more for them to be done correctly. Um, so yeah, throw cost in there with convenience yeah. and carry on. Yeah, that's it. And yeah, so that does and and here is where it, where it does metal maybe maybe it is time to buy less avocados and maybe maybe i mean maybe it is time to watch less shows and that to say something like that is not shouldn't be an outrageous claim at all but anyway i think there's the 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 posture of gratitude rather than entitlement which is important and then also that willingness to part with convenience when it's the right thing to do i think those are two helpful guiding principles i hope those are helpful in this discussion we've we've come a long way from the the tragic events on the set of rust but i hope that this has been this has been helpful and that it's maybe given us some bearings on on a case that I'm sure we'll we'll get very contentious as that interview of Alec Baldwin drops and as more of these these questions begin to surface. And actually, I found the quote here, Cameron, because this the full quote uh, that I was referring to Wendell Berry there earlier. I does I do think fits in nicely with what you've been saying. And this is in an essay called "The Gift of Good Land." And really, um, I'd recommend it. <clears throat> you should go back and read at least the conclusion to it. Um, because he he starts to tie some of this idea into the idea of fellowship or not fellowship but stewardship. Um, well, fellowship too. He's he's kind of making the argument that our our work is good, and that when we're losing this this ability to interact with the world well, that we're actually kind of outcast from the great neighborhood of creation. So we're actually not just harming the other, but ourselves in it because we're not participating correctly in the fullness of it. And then this is the last paragraph. He says, that is not to suggest that we can live harmlessly or strictly at our own expense. We depend upon other creatures and survive by their deaths. To live, we must daily break the body and shed the blood of creation. When we do this knowingly, lovingly, skillfully, reverently, it's a sacrament. When we do it ignorantly, greedily, clumsily, destructively, it's a desecration. In such desecration, we condemn ourselves to spiritual and moral loneliness and others to want. Yeah, and that's a very powerful way of putting it. And I think that when I'm, you know, going about my day, I think one of the, the, what that does is it charges with significance, my daily activities, and even some of the most mundane tasks, because they are, they're imbued with meaning but there's also a very real responsibility and there's a very real sense there's a cost to be paid there and i think it's well, for very living in general right there's a cost to for live living in, for a cost, a cost to, to live yeah cost to live and living in general and to not enter into an attitude of denial or just kind of willful ignorance there but to accept ownership and responsibility there I think the prerequisite for this being a sacrament is really taking responsibility and ownership. And thoughtlessness is 
in many ways, the, the, the gateway to what Barry is calling desecration. And I do think that thought, thoughtlessness here is one of the great temptations of our age because it's just so easy to do. You can, there, and there, it, it will require no effort on your part to be a thoughtless consumer, for instance, because you'll just drift right into that. It will require effort to be responsible. And I think, fortunately, I think there's a growing awareness of, of this in the Christian community and a kind of awakening to the creation mandate, stewardship, when it comes to how we live and all of our daily practices and all of our habits. And so I think that's a, a good wa- watchword for us. And I know that we've, we've come a long way from, from where we started in this podcast, <laughs> but I actually think this, but I think it's been constructive and helpful. It's been helpful, at least to me, Nathan. And so we, we hope that it's been helpful to you also as, as you've listened. And maybe just the gentle recognition that the shows we're watching our entertainment, what we're eating, all of it is imbued with real significance. I think just recognizing that is is a powerful step in the right direction. But thanks for hanging with us in this in this wide-ranging conversation. That's what we do here at Thinking Out Loud. And just a quick reminder, once again, if you want to know more about what we're up to, if you want to read some articles from Nathan, myself, or Stuart McAllister, you can head over to our website, which is toltogether.com. So www.toltogether.com. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book one of our speakers or make a donation, visit thinkingoutloudtogether.com. And lastly, if you'd like our podcast, spread the word. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating. It really does help.